Nehemiah is the story of God keeping his promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through his people for their flourishing both spiritually through ordering their lives around his word and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, and the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people, so that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city. Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if you have a Bible, if you, you could open it to Nehemiah chapter 2. That's in the Old Testament. Go about midway through your Bible. It's the book of Psalms. Keep going to your left. Turn to your left and you'll, you'll hit uh, Job and then you'll come into Esther in, a, in about a, a very short, Esther and then Nehemiah in a very short order. So, uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, it's alright. It's in your order of worship. Or, um, if you don't own a Bible, there are a few on the back table we'd love to give you. I know it's a little awkward getting up right now, so if you don't want to grab it now, just grab it on your way out. Love for that to be our gift to you. So this fall, and what I mean by fall is I mean up through the beginning of Advent, which is roughly the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we are asking the question as a church, what does renewal of our city look like? And if you've been at Holy Cross any amount of time, you probably know that we, we aspire, we endeavor to be a church that's not here for ourselves, that doesn't, it's not just in the city or, or uh, using the city for our own good, but in fact we want to be for it, uh, for our, our city, for our neighbors. We're asking this question by looking through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, because Nehemiah in many ways is kind of a storied roadmap. What I mean by that is it's obviously not a, it's not a, a, a checklist or, or steps to doing something, but it is, it's a story of how God did a work of renewal in both people and in structures to see a community flourish. And so we looked two weeks ago at the need for renewal, right? That because of sin, both people and God's world are broken, but that God has worked through Jesus to see both renewed by grace. We talked about that two weeks ago. And then last week, uh, we looked at the foundation for renewal, that it's not based on our actions, our intentions, or our abilities, but, but purely on God's grace and his faithfulness to his promises to accomplish his work to make things right. And so this week we look to the power for renewal, from whence it comes, both to us, to us and through us. So if you have your place in Nehemiah 2, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8, or sorry, 1 through 10, forgive me, uh, of Nehemiah 2. Friends, this is God's word to us. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. 
Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And, the king, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river. They may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked because the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite her servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, over this time we ask your blessing that with whatever we've come into this room with, whether it's a story of joy or a story of struggle, whether it is uh, a story of doubt or a story of great faith, we ask that you would meet us where we are, that you would reveal yourself to us, preach your gospel to us, make our hearts soft uh, and our eyes quick to see the glory of Jesus. Let everything that he has done come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. You alone hold the words of eternal life. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Some of you know that I'm, I'm um, to some degree, a student of, of early church history. I love the history of the early church. And I don't know whether you are aware of this, but in the first kind of three centuries of what we call the Common Era or A.D., whatever you want to call it, the, the Roman Empire experienced a series of epidemics, of plagues, of sicknesses that kind of swept through the empire uh, with vast reductions of the population, like up to a third of the population dead because of these things. And the response of different groups within the empire during that time to these epidemics was striking. Because the vast majority, and this is, this is both in, uh, you, you'll see this in, in Christian writers who have written during the time and also Roman writers who have written during the time, uh, sec, uh, we would call them secular writers, uh, they would call themselves pagans. Uh, but what they would say is that the vast majority of pagan Romans, that is to say non-Christian Romans, if they had means, when, a, when an epidemic would hit their city, if they had the means, they would flee. They would, they would go to their winter home or their summer home or just get out of Dodge, right? That makes sense. Don't want to stick around, the plague's hitting. The ones that didn't have the means, however, now they couldn't, they couldn't flee. So what did they do? Well, uh, stories abound of family members. When a member of their family would become ill, they would literally push them out of the house... <laughs> And close the door. Done. Because they didn't want to die. And there was no such thing as like medicine to actually like heal people. And so, so they would, they would uh, isolate themselves as much as possible. Family members, friends thrown into the streets to keep down the spread of this disease. But Christians had the opposite response. It's striking. Like, and and this, this baffled the, the Romans. Like, how, why, why is it? But what Christians would do is they'd take the folks who had been pushed into the streets and they would bring them into their home. And they would nurse them and care for them. And many times, 
they would get sick and they would die. You know, that kind of attitude, that kind of, those kind of actions led to the uh, creation of what we now call hospitals, right? So why did they do that? Is it because they were nice? I mean, that, that's what most we'd say, they're just nice folks. I mean, you don't think they were nice Romans? There are lots of nice Romans. <laughs> uh, what would drive someone to do something like that? To put their own life at risk for the sake of someone that they may have never even met? That's actually the same thing we see in this text, though it's harder to see. A strange motivation that leads to a particular action that we're going to look at here this morning. We're going to look at it in two ways. There's an outline, as always, in your uh, bulletin, if that's helpful. We're going to look at the man and the mission, and then we're going to look at the prayer and the plan. Okay? The man and the mission, then the prayer and the plan. So first, let's look at the man and the mission by seeing this guy's position, this dude's position that we're looking at. Looking down at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 4, it says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up wine and gave it to the king. Now stop there. Nehemiah told us in the last chapter, or the last verse of the last chapter, that he was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer. Now, uh, to many of us, that seems kind of like, at best, head servant, right? Kind of like the head butler at Downton Abbey. Like That's, that's the way we view the cupbearer. Um, but in the ancient Near East where this is taking place, the situation was a bit different. Because you see, in the ancient Near East, unlike on Downton Abbey, uh, assassination was normal. I mean, just normal. It's a normal part of life. In fact, most of the time, uh, the people you were most at risk from, if you were at royalty, of getting assassinated would have been your uh, kids or siblings. Someone someone would want to kill you. Uh, and, And so it was normally family members. Nice, huh? And the easiest way to assassinate someone is to poison them. It gets around the whole armed guard thing. You know, you got big, huge dudes with swords and armor standing in front of the king. It's harder to do the direct assault. Let's go the poison route. It's easy. It's clean. Um, not necessarily painless, but it gets the job done. And so to curb that, to be a guard against that, the king would have what he called his cupbearer. And what the cupbearer did was the cupbearer was to be the one who delivered the food and drink to the king. And before the king touched it, before he ingested it, the cupbearer would take a swig of the wine, swoosh around. It's okay. And then you give it to the king. You do the same with the food. You take a few bites, test it out. Not dead. Must be okay. Okay? And so that sounds terrible, right? I mean, great. So poison is going to happen, and you're the last line of defense. Well, think with me, though. If you're the last line of defense between the king and death, you have to have the guy's trust, right? I mean, if, if poison is the most likely way in which you're going to be assassinated as a king, the dude who's tasting your food, he better be the most trusted person you have around you. Because if he betrays you, you're done. And so scholars will tell you that the cupbearer is like the most trusted advisor a king would have. And that in most cases, this head butler was also involved in your political discussions. Because you trusted him more than you trusted other people. Okay? So that's what it meant that when, when we see that he's taking wine to the king. Nehemiah is in an incredibly powerful and influential position. Uh, the second thing that I want us to see right here at the beginning is that this has taken place in the month of Nisan, which is not named after the car, and the car is not named after this month. Okay? It's a Jewish month. Um, but what I want to see is, like, in the last chapter we heard that the, the time in which Nehemiah had heard from his friends or from other Jews that Jerusalem had been 
the walls are still broken, the gates were still burned, was the month of Chizav, which is about four months previous. So think with me, especially if you were here last week, think with me about this. This dude has been praying and fasting for four months before making an ask. Four months. And so the king finally notices this. I mean, if you're going without food for that long, or at least a, re- a very restricted intake of food, it's, look, no one can last without food for four months, right? So we get that. But he, he obviously had a very restricted intake. That's going to make some kind of physical changes in you. The king finally notices this, right? And he asks, what's up? And then comes this strange line where Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Well, why would he be afraid? I mean, here's the king showing interest in his servant, right? His most trusted advisor. What? What's wrong? Are you okay? Like, that, that's what we hear, right? Are you, are you okay? Is everything all right? Because you look, you look a little sad. Right? As if, as if the king is this, like, benevolent, like, self, uh, self-aware, emotionally in-tune dude. It is not what is going on, okay? We don't understand what life is like under a king. Here's the deal. In the ancient Near East, kings held the power of life and death. We don't get that. Because we aren't ruled by kings, we're ruled by laws. But in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, kings held the power of life and death. Which means that if he didn't like your hair, dead. And and no one's going to go, oh, hold on, Betty. Oh, hold on. That ain't right. He gets an appeal. No, no, no. Dead. Like, that's the way it was. If you're under the rule of a king, he gets to decide. If if Artaxerxes wants Nehemiah dead, he will die right there, right then. That is what it means to be a king. And so, obviously, any time you're going to approach the king with something... There's a fear in you. But even more so, this is probably, scholars will tell you, this is probably taking place during a feast. Okay, some kind of feast, some kind of big banquet dinner. Now again, when you and I throw a big banquet, we throw a big dinner, we're worried about our guests, right? They come into our home or or our place and we're worried about our guests. In the ancient Near East, you don't care about your guests if you're the king. The banquet is for the king. Ultimately, it's all about the king his emotions, how much fun he's having, how happy he is. Nehemiah is kind of a downer, right? He's like Debbie Downer in the corner, like, here's your wine. Like, like, why are you sad? You know, and so all of a sudden, if the king thinks that you're a downer, that could mean your head. So he has a right to be afraid. And then there's this last thing. That thing that Nehemiah is sad about, you know, walls broken, gates burned down, that's Artaxerxes' fault. That's the king's fault. You see, the king Artaxerxes was the one who, when he had received a report, now we learned that it was not a true report, but he still received a report, that there was this city in Judah called Jerusalem, and they were rebuilding their walls and putting their gates back up, and they were primed for rebellion. So you know what he did? He said, put an end to it. Violently. And they did. The the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The gates are burned because Artaxerxes said that city's going to rebel. He made the decision. So what what is making Nehemiah upset is something that this king ordered. And now this king, and now Nehemiah, is being asked about it. Put those things together. Do you get why he's so afraid? Literally, he feared a great fear. Do Do you understand it? 
Let me make it clear. As cupbearer, Nehemiah had a very cushy existence. He is closest, the closest, most trusted person to the king. King's not giving his, his queen the cup before he drinks it, right? He's, he's giving it to Nehemiah. Nehemiah has this cushy existence. Yes, it was possible he would be poisoned. Not very likely. You're not going to do that if it's going to kill the cupbearer and not kill the king. There's no point, right? So it's not very likely. But he had the favor of the king. He was living, he was, he was, his life was awesome, okay? His job was to eat the king's food before the king did, to drink the king's wine before he did. And the king does not get bad food, right? The king's not getting the cheap wine. Like, he's getting the good stuff. Nehemiah was doing well for himself. He's a Jew in a pagan, completely, in his mind, godless court. And he has the best life ever. And he's putting all of that at risk. He could literally be killed right here for even bringing it up. Why would you do that? Why would you even begin to do that? Now, answering that question will have us look at a greater position. So let's do that now. Because you see, to answer what is motivating a Jew, not just a Jew, but a Jew who had never lived in Jerusalem, who had never even been to Judah. This guy was born and raised in exile. He probably never, he probably never even set eyes on Jerusalem. And the bunch of people that live there, he never met. What, what does he care Here you have a person who is willing to put his life at risk for the flourishing of God's people. And to get at why, we have to go back to his prayer from last week. Because you see, in in the prayer that we heard him pray last week, we see faith in a God who makes and keeps promises. Who loves with a loyal, strong love. We see Nehemiah declaring himself a sinner. Someone who had broken relationship with that God. That amazing, awesome God. He had broken relationship with him just like everyone else had. Who would have affirmed what the Apostle Paul would say uh, several hundred years later. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then, and then we also we see him look to God to rescue his people from sin. Not based on their goodness. Because they, they didn't have any. But instead purely out of his grace. To reconcile us to himself. In other words, here is a man who believed the gospel. Because you see, all those promises that Nehemiah prayed last week, and we looked at this, all those promises that he prayed, all those uh, those things that he trusted God to do, to rescue us from our sin, to reconcile reconcile us to himself, to, to keep his covenant promises to save us, we know on this side of history that God did do that. He brought to fruition in Jesus. Nehemiah was willing to give up his treasured place because he had faith in a God who would one day do the exact same thing. See, that's what we see in Jesus. God in the flesh. Second person of the Trinity, like God the Son. And out of God's love for us, out of the will of the Father to save, he leaves the throne room of heaven. He takes on flesh, not just risking death, but willingly accepting it. He lived like we could not. He died as we dare not. He did so in our place to save a people for himself, to see them flourish. 
And then Jesus rose from the dead as the down payment on a world made new, the world that God promised to renew. This is the promise. This is the, the covenant that Nehemiah had a place in, and this is why he could risk his position. This is why he could risk his life. He had a greater position in a greater kingdom. A kingdom of God secured for him not by what he had done, but by faith in what God would do. Do you see that? Believing the gospel gives you the freedom to risk like this. That greater position gives way to the freedom to risk. What Nehemiah did makes no sense in our culture, does it? I mean, think about it. We can almost imagine the arguments going on in our heads if we were in that same position. You know what? I could do so much more good in this position of influence. I, could, I, I have access to wealth. I have access to power. I have the ear of the king. I could, I could just work behind the scenes to help out. I mean, I've arrived. Why, why, would, I, why would I risk all that and potentially find myself dead in the wilderness for, for, or dead in this courtroom for, for nothing? Why risk that? You risk it if and only if the position, the wealth, the prestige, the security has nothing to offer you. See, you and I, by nature, what we do is we look out for number one. That's what we do. I mean, we, we, we get that, right? You look out for number one. You, you, we chase after that which we think will give us life. Now, the sneaky thing is that for some of us, what we think will give us life is, is doing good for other people, whether that's because it'll give us a reputation or help us feel good or, or whatever. It, at the end of the day, uh, it, it's ultimately about us. But maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe it's something else. Because you know, if we believe that having power will give us life, if I have power, if I have influence, if I have uh, uh, some, some way of, of getting my way a lot, we, we're not going to risk that. If that's going to give us life, we'll never risk it. If it's money... We'll never put it at stake. If reputation, we're not going to risk it. But here's the thing. And you know this. You know this intuitively. You just don't want to, none of us want to admit it. None of those things can actually give you life. All they produce is pride and insecurity because there's never enough money. There's never enough power. Your reputation is never good enough with enough people who think everything you do is great. Trust me, I've tried. Especially with that last one. And that is because our problem isn't that we don't have enough power or money or reputation. Our problem is that we're alienated from God. And so the only thing that can, that can answer that problem, the only thing that can reconcile us to God is faith in Christ. And if you've been reconciled to God through Christ, it isn't that those things no longer matter and you go, well, power, meaningless, completely useless, wealth, who needs it? Who needs money anyway? It's not that they lose all meaning. It's that they're not ultimate anymore. You can put them at risk because you, don't, you know you don't need them. You, they're good, but they're not God. And that is why Christians in the third century put their lives at risk to help dying Romans. It wasn't because they were nice, though they might have been. And it wasn't because that in doing this they thought, I'm going to show God how much, how good I am. And I'll secure my position before him. That, that I can win God's favor. They did it instead because they had God's favor. They did it instead because they knew that Christ had conquered death and hell. And so what can a little illness do to them? Because through faith in him, they would as well. Friends, if Jesus has given you everything, you can risk anything. If he hasn't, 
then you're going to be stuck protecting your lesser loves. You will always be stuck protecting your lesser saviors. That's only part of the story now. Now let's turn to the prayer and the plan. Uh, first with the prayer. Look at at the end of verse 4. Nehemiah is terrified, right? We just got through with that. He said, I was greatly afraid. Literally, I, I feared a great fear. Uh, I, uh, I'm really scared. And he's laid out the reason for it. The city of his fathers is in ruins. The king has just asked him what he wants. And Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, two quick things on this. In this first two chapters, what, we, what we're given, is, you know, obviously we're given two different and legitimate forms of prayer, right? Because the first one's like long and intentional. It's, it's, very, it's almost scripted. You almost get the sense he wrote it out, which he might have. I, I would hope so. That's how we got it. Like he's, he's uh, very clear argumentation. All that stuff's going on. And the second is, well, well, clearly not, right? I mean, it's not intentional. It's not super long. It's, it's very brief. Uh, this is what is often called in Christian circles shooting up an arrow. I'm not sure why. What are you trying to, like, hit God on the throne? Like, here, take this. Oh, help me out if you can. Like, I don't, I don't know why we do that, but uh, I, di- I digress. Okay, here's the thing. Nehemiah has spent months, four months, praying, fasting, arguing with the Lord, asking the Lord to act. And now he's given the opportunity and he prays one final brief time. This is kind of like the, okay, we've been talking about this. Here we go. Boom. You know, Lord, do your thing. And he, and he moves in, right? That's that kind of, kind, of, kind of prayer. And so as brief of a mention as this is, it's important for us to have this. Because you see, like we said last week, Nehemiah's hope. His trust is in nothing less than the God of heaven, okay? He has the king's ear, but he knows he can't trust in that. Matter of fact, that could get him killed. He has a plan. We're going to get to that plan in a second. But that isn't where his hope is. He has an opportunity. He's got good intentions, but as we all know, there are roads to very bad places paved with good intentions, right? He's not trusting in those things. This prayer is offered to show that his trust is still in the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And then, with all the chutzpah he could, he could draw to himself, he asks the king to release him and his own resources to rebuild the city that he ordered destroyed. <laughs> but then something happens. The king says... How long are you going to be gone? When are you coming back? Right? This is huge. Again, think with me. Artaxerxes was the one who made the decision to break the walls and to stop construction on them. He's the one who burned the gates to make sure that they wouldn't get rebuilt. This was his decision. And again, we don't, maybe we do get this. How often do you see politicians in power change their minds on things? Right? Like, I mean, apart from a little bit of waffling here and there, but if, they, uh, if, they, if they've made a, a decision that has that much public notoriety, when have you seen anyone stand up and go, yeah, I was wrong on that. Ooh, my bad. Shouldn't have put that law in place. Shouldn't have done that. No. It's always like, that dude, my advisors, they tricked me. Like, kings don't change their minds. They don't change their minds in the ancient Near East because they don't want to look weak. But Artaxerxes changes his and Nehemiah is ready. So let's look at the plan, right? Let's look down at verses 5 to 10, okay? 
See, here's the deal. Nehemiah had not just spent the last four months praying, sitting on his hands. God, please do something. I have no clue. What are we going to do? As in, in the midst of praying, he's making a plan. He's planning for when, not if, when God would do something. Look at this plan. He knows how long it's going to take. King says, how long are you going to be gone when you're coming back? He gives him an, he gives him an outline. This long. It's going to take me this long. I, and then he, he knows the supplies. He says, and I'm going to need this and this and this. He, he's got le- he, needs, he knows he needs letters to take to the governors because those governors are about to let him rebuild a city that may uh, marginalize them politically. No one likes to be marginalized politically. And he knows they're going to need the, uh, letters that say the king says to do this. He even, the, he even gets the protection likely needed for him on the way. You think he just came up with that on the fly? What do you need? Uh, trees. I need timber. Like, uh, letters? Like, no, no. He had been doing research. You think Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, knows how much wood it's going to take to rebuild walls, a house, and the temple? No. He's not omnicompetent. He would have had to have gone to someone who builds things and say, hey, if you were to rebuild, for the sake of argument, if you were to rebuild a city's walls a temple, and a fine house. Like, how much wood would that take? Like, he, he's, he's doing research. This took administrative gifts, and it took time and energy. This was not sitting around praying that God would do something and wondered what that would be one day. He is actively believing that God would act by using the gifts and resources available to him to plan for that time. So let me give you two reasons why this is important to us, okay? First and foremost... It presses against this silly dualism that says that trusting God means not doing anything. That's ridiculous, okay? God works through means. It's all over the Bible. God sovereignly decrees something, and oh, by the way, here's this person who just ends up in the right place at the right time doing the right things with amazing abilities to see it done. How does that happen? The fact that God is sovereign does not mean that we do nothing. It actually empowers us to work. It frees us to work by taking the pressure off of us because the effectiveness to act or the effectiveness of the act doesn't rest on us. He prays, certainly. He prays passionately, desperately even, but he also plans for what will be needed if and when God answers that prayer. And second, it speaks to the fact that God is sovereign even over where we are and how we are built. Here's what I mean. Nehemiah, we're going to see this throughout the book, is clearly a gifted administrator. A gifted administrator who also happened to be great at holding cups, right? Like, the, he's, he's in this position, but he is a very gifted administrator. He knows what would, what would be needed to, uh, to see this happen, and he wants to see it happen. And not only is he gifted, but he's in the place to see it all accomplished. We get the same thing in the Old Testament when we see um, the, the book of Daniel and where Daniel is, who also happens to be in a Persian court. And, and Esther, where Esther, for such a time as this, is placed in the king's court to, to accomplish change. And the same thing is true in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, who is an incredibly educated person, both in the Jewish uh, schools of thought and in Roman schools of thought, and had so much zeal. So was in, he was crazy. This guy was crazy, seeking, walking from Jerusalem to Damascus, walking so that he could drag Christians out of their homes and throw them into jail. Like, that, that's not a day trip. 
okay? This dude is crazy, and when Jesus redeems that, all of that craziness is turned, instead of working against God's kingdom, for it. All of those gifts, all of those abilities are turned outward for Christ and his kingdom. Last thing about this. Notice why Nehemiah thought he was successful. Look at verse 8. He says, the king granted me what I asked because the good hand of my God was upon me. This dude had a plan. He had a passion. He had prayed. It is even likely, some scholars believe, it's even likely he strategically picked when he would look sad in front of the king. As in like, here's a good time. All right, we're going now. Like, you know, he had strategically picked all of that. But at the end of the day, he knew that none of that would have mattered without God's will. He's accomplished what he accomplished because the good hand of his God was upon him. Now, here's why all this matters. Let's talk about being producing people. Nehemiah was in a position in the Persian kingdom because of God's sovereignty. He was willing to risk that position because he had faith in the God who promised to save him from his sins. And that faith turned him from looking out for number one to being willing to use all that he had to see God glorified and others flourished. But here's the thing. That is not unique to Nehemiah. It's not like, like, wow, what a great hero of the faith. That is so unique in all of the Bible. No, no, no. That is what the Bible says is supposed to happen. That is what happens to all of us when we have been transformed, when we have been redeemed. The biblical story is of God blessing his people so that they might be a blessing. Working in us so that we might be outworking. In other words, the gospel of Jesus turns us outward. There is no such thing as a consumer Christian. Sorry? We are blessed to bless. So let me ask you a question. Where has God sovereignly placed you that is in need of renewal? Listen, now if we all agree that we're all around broken people and in a broken community, then we agree that God has placed us somewhere. So before you run off of that and go, oh, well, that's, that's for other people. I'm not spiritually there yet, or I'm not, I'm not whatever. God has placed us somewhere. Where is that? Maybe you're thinking right now of your workplace, right? Where people are hurting. Or maybe your workplace is a place where you actually have the kind of influence that Nehemiah had. Where you could actually see things change. See people helped and flourish. Maybe you're thinking of your neighborhood where there are lots of people who don't know Jesus. Kids, maybe you're thinking of your school and those, who, those that need help there. Friends, if you're a Christian in here this morning, I know not everyone is, but if you're a Christian in here this morning, God has sovereignly placed you somewhere. And that somewhere is not for you to get. I don't care whether you are this big or well into retirement. It is not for you to get, but for you to bless. So where is it? Because you see, the problem is that we don't think that this applies to us, right? We, we, we try and fool ourselves. God doesn't really care about my job, my neighborhood, my school. I mean, he's really, he's really more into, like, big things. God's call in Genesis, friends, to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. Uh, that, that's 
that's weird language to us, and especially the dominion thing. It strikes against our, a, a lot of us who are, you know, more millennial in our leanings, and we don't, we don't like the idea of dominion. It reeks of power, it's coercion. That language means to take the raw materials of the world and develop them into, in such ways that they produce places and structures where people can flourish, and God's rule is extended. That's what that means. So that means that God cares about all of these things. See, Paul says in Colossians that, that the work of Jesus was to reconcile all things to himself. Not just things with flesh and blood. All things to himself. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, can I tell you something? You are caught up in something. And it is way bigger than you. It is way bigger than your happiness. It is certainly way bigger than your personal salvation. And in light of that, are your prayers and your plans lining up with God's? So here's my challenge to us. We conclude here this morning. I want to add a few things to your daily prayers. If you don't pray daily, now's the time to start. Okay? Let me add a few things to your daily prayers. First, for many of us, myself included, we need to pray that God would continually work in us his heart for the world. His heart for the world. That you would desire to see his name made famous in all the world. Okay? Second, uh, we need to be praying for folks to be renewed. <laughs> People that we know who, who maybe don't know Jesus. And you've heard me say this before. I'm going to challenge you again. Some of you are hearing it for the first time. Here it is. Three to five people, really easy. You write down a little card, you put three to five names on it. People you know that don't know Jesus right now. Begin praying that they would. Third, pray that God would show you how, to, how you can seek to see others flourish where God has placed you. In other words, as God is giving you a heart for his world, as you begin to see people who are in need, and then, and then pray, God, show me, because I don't even know. I look at the issues and they're too big. Look at my neighborhood, it's just too broken. I look at my workplace and it's just, it's too much. And it is. Ask God to show you where you can begin seeing others flourish right where he's placed you. And then, I would ask you to begin using your gifts to plan what you would do. What would you do if God actually began to answer your prayers? What would you do if you began to realize he's probably in your prayers, he's going to begin using you to answer them. Listen, these are dangerous prayers. They are dangerous because they line up with God's heart for the world. They're dangerous because God could work something in you that you're not expecting, like giving you a heart for something crazy, like, like giving your life to see teen moms flourish. Or mentoring and tutoring kids in chaotic situations who who just need a little extra help learning. Or giving kids who have no safe home a home. And love. And all of a sudden, all your plans are off, man. They're gone. But in it, can I promise you, let me promise you something. In those things, you will have the presence of God. Because as you move out in mission, as you move out to see others flourish, realize that is where Jesus is. That's why he, at the end of Matthew 28, when he, tells, when he tells his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples, he says at the end of it, and lo, I am with you always. Why is that? Because I'm out there too, he says. I'm out there doing that same thing. 
He's not giving you a mission. He's, he's, he's asking you to join in his. And so as we move out, we can be sure of the presence of God because he is working even now at the same things because he is the power for renewal. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, our God, you are great. You are good. And we are here in this room because you have acted. And many times we are here in this room because you have acted through others who you put in our lives at the right, in the right place at the right time. And so, Lord, we, we pray, first and foremost, we pray for your heart for this world. That we might be able to see a world broken and have our hearts break by it. Lord, we pray for our friends who don't know Jesus yet, that you would be working in their lives and give us opportunity to be able to share the glorious gospel with them. We, we pray, uh, thirdly, Lord, that, that you would begin to show us where you've placed us, show us how we can seek the good of those around us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ideas, give us wisdom, help empower by your spirit the gifts that you've given us to accomplish your will in our city, in our community. Because Lord, if you don't do this, no amount of our good intentions, no amount of our abilities, no amount of our uh, wanting to be nice to people is going to help. You alone are the power for renewal in our city, in our own hearts. So we pray that you would be active in that. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.